can't tell you how excited I am to not have to do this every week. I mean, it's an honor to uh, preach the Word of God, and I'm happy to do it, but I also realize how much more gifted Clayton, Pastor Clayton is at it than I am, and so I'm just very excited for him to come back. Um, I mean, mostly for his health and everything, but also for my needs. <laughs> the Stolen Kingdom has been a study of the founding stories of the Bible in Genesis 1 through 11. We've seen the triune God created the universe and filled it with creatures to share his love. He created the spiritual beings to govern the heavens and us to govern the earth. He planted a garden temple called Eden, where man and woman would work shoulder to shoulder to extend the border of his good garden across the whole face of the earth. But that original goodness was stolen by rebel angels who tricked Adam and Eve into disobeying the Lord. They enticed Cain to murder his brother Abel, igniting a sequence of vengeance and violence. They tried to steal Yahweh's promise of a serpent stomper by corrupting the human bloodline. And so the Creator brought the great floodwaters of chaos back over the world, a baptism of sorts that cleansed it of its evil. But sin survived the flood, stowing away in the corrupted hearts of Noah and his children. The human family multiplied, but began to fracture. And as it did so into these warring tribes and nations. In our final passage today, this rebellion culminates in the story of the Tower of Babel. Which we have up there. And that image, <laughs> the Tower of Babel did not have a giant Wi-Fi symbol on it. I took that from my uh, Sunday school class last spring. The Tower of Babel has free Wi-Fi, which some of you enjoyed. And uh, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. I'm, I don't miss it. It was, it was a lot of work. But uh, anyway, that's, that's the explanation for that, just in case you were wondering. Pastor Clayton and I chose to embark on this sermon series in Genesis because the message of Genesis remains a timely word. While technology and culture have certainly changed since the time that these stories were first told, we humans are not that much different. We are cleaner and taller, maybe, but apart from that, we're not much different. We, like the folks in Genesis, struggle with tension in our families, with disaster, with disease, with fighting and silencing the voice of condemnation. Genesis reminds us that God is good, that he created a good world full of blessing. And we chose this series as well because we are facing incredible challenges as households, as a church, as a nation. And for many of us, the emphasis on spiritual beings in Genesis has been a new thing, has been much delving into this before, and I hope that it's been energizing to read these familiar stories with a freshened perspective, and a lesson to all of us that the Lord always has more for us in familiar stories. But it should also be sobering, as the ancient witness of the scriptures leave us in no doubt that the challenges we face are not merely physical, viral, or political. Spiritual powers of evil are at work in our world as well, and they are pursuing our ruin and destruction. And these first 11 chapters of Genesis are a tragedy. It starts nice, but then things quickly go wrong. They don't have a happy ending. If the Bible stopped at Genesis 11, it would be a very gloomy book indeed. 
this collapse of the human and spiritual realms into chaos, rebellion, and evil. But they don't stand as God's final word to the world. And while they are a diagnosis of grave disease, these stories are only the prologue to a much longer tale of healing and restoration, what we call the rest of the Bible. And that's the ultimate reason that we preach out of Genesis or any book of the scriptures, that we may more magnify Jesus, his work on our behalf on the cross and the empty tomb, and even now on the throne of God, to magnify the benefits, what benefits of the triune God we have access to through him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're welcome, if you have a Bible, to join me in Genesis chapter 11. We will be reading verses 1 through 9, and if you would, please stand for the reading of the scriptures. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You can be seated. This story has rebellion and disobedience written all over it. You may wonder what God had against building a city or building a tower. And it's really not about what they were building. It was about why they were doing what they were doing. They resisted the creator's intention for people to spread out over the face of the earth and decided to stick all in one place and build a city and a tower instead. Verse 2 tells us that they migrated east. And one assumes that they're migrating from where the ark came to rest, Noah's ark. Movement to the east, people going east, is usually a bad idea in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve are expelled to the east of Eden. Jacob flees to the east after he steals his brother's inheritance. Ultimately, the Israelites were exiled to the east in Babylon after the destruction of Jerusalem. East is often the direction of exile and trouble. And so it makes sense that as people, they move east on a journey of disobedience from the Lord. They thought that a tower and a city would make their name great. But what's interesting or what struck me about that is who, who did they need to make their name great for? All the people were there. There were no neighbors to impress, at least no human neighbors to impress. So what are they talking about? I think their motivation is to take divine glory, right, a divine reputation for themselves to make their name great like the spiritual beings, to make their name great like Yahweh, the creator's name, 
is great. They want their name up in lights, like God and the spiritual beings have. They have these heavenly monuments, the stars and planets that proclaim the glory of God. So let's build a tower up there so we can have a great name as well. And this whole sorry story started because the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. And so we see the culmination of that in the Tower of Babel story. Genesis as a whole does not think much of cities. Uh, you'll notice that as a theme as it goes throughout. But cities tend to be bad news and where bad things happen. And the only city we've really seen so far in the story is the one that Cain built back in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Cain traveled east as well before he built his city. So I think Genesis is telling us that people have wandered far, far away from Yahweh's good garden. Far, far away from his original intention and his goodwill. And are making a mess of everything. And there's an emphasis on language in Genesis chapter 11. And that's what the story is famous for. Right? I mean, I believe our English word babble, like babbling, comes from this story. Right? There are translation apps called Babel, you know, that you can download and things. That's what the, the, the story is famous for. But I think that it's, it's more than just the explanation for how we got all these different languages. Right? Part of what it's telling us is that language, and we know this today, language is intimately tied to na nation, na na excuse me, speaking of babbling, <laughs> language is closely tied to national identity, to ethnic identity, and things like that, right? If you've ever, I don't know, I, well, I guess I should make this claim. I did not grow up in a multilingual family, but I, from having read and, and heard others' experiences, sometimes growing up in a multilingual family, it brings more uh, disorder sometimes into it because, you know, you have multiple languages being spoken and things like that. I think multilingual churches, there's an extra layer of, of uh, difficulty to that fellowship. So language is closely tied to these other identities, nationhood and culture. And so really a separation of language means a separation into the nations, into the cultures, right? That's what's happening here. And so Babel is the last chapter in the story of the human family breaking into these many nations, right? Setting the stage for the rest of the biblical drama. Many of these nations and families will fight one another, and many of them will fight or even conquer Israel, Abraham's family. And we see as well that the scattering is actually Yahweh's judgment upon them. Right? It wasn't just something that happened on its own, but he actually drove this to happen. Now, I think that we really see that the story of Pentecost in the book of Acts is sort of the closing of the loop of these things in the New Covenant. That the Holy Spirit comes upon a group of people, and what do they do? They all start speaking in these different languages. Right? And all these people gather in Jerusalem and go, hey, they're talking about the good news in my language. I don't know why. I think it takes us too far there, too far afield from our passage this morning to really get into what was going on, why did Yahweh want to break people up into these different languages and things like this, but we know that the end goal was to reunite the human family under the Lordship of Jesus in the good news, which is what we see beginning to happen in the book of Acts and through the epistles and in our own lives. And the Tower of Babel 
in our culture and societies, in our hearts and the Bible, stands as this utmost expression of human pride and arrogance. It is a symbol of all our fleshly striving, all our technological hubris. And the tower, rather than being a spire or a ziggurat, and, and the, the first picture I had up is more of like a medieval style, or a tower, I'm sorry. The first picture I had up was more of a medieval tower, uh, but it wouldn't have really looked like that. It probably would have looked something like this, which is a structure called a ziggurat. And these are still over there. You can visit them in Iraq and some other places. They don't look like this anymore because they're thousands of years old. But in the plains of Babylon, this is the, the, the towers, the buildings that they would build. And what it was is they would take a bunch of dirt and they would pile it on top of it, on top, and then they would put bricks over it. Right? So that's what we see here. And there'd be a temple on top. And really what these are is they acted like artificial mountains. They didn't have any mountains in the plains of Shinar. It's a plain. Uh, so they built these instead. We've talked before about how in the ancient worldview they, they felt that mountains were places where people could meet with God or meet with the gods. That's what mountains were for. And as Clayton talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Garden of Eden is actually pictured as being on a mountain. Genesis describes that there are rivers that flow down from it. In Ezekiel and some other places that refer back to it, it's referred to as a mountain. So Eden is actually pictured as being on top of a mountain, a sacred mountain. And so when people got together to build a tower with its top in the heavens, it wasn't that they thought we can build one all the way up there, right? And I think as a child, that was kind of the conception that they thought they could just build one so tall that eventually they'd you know, be able to knock against the sky and, and tell God to come out and explain himself. But that really wasn't what was happening. Really what was happening is they were building an artificial Eden, an artificial mountain, a place to meet with God. And I think that if their motivation had been good, I think that if their motivation had been to reunite with him, then I think the story would have played out differently. But that wasn't their motivation, right? They built a tower, they built the sacred mountain for themselves to make their own name great. Really, I think, to try and control, gain some measure of control over God. And there are obvious lessons for us about the limits of human power, ability, ingenuity. That's really what my Sunday school class last spring was about. We will never exceed our own nature by our own power. And stay human, right? You know, people talk about how one day we could maybe download our minds into computers or things like that. It's like, well, good luck. I don't think that's still going to be you at the end of that process. <clears throat> Technology, the wonders of science, the devices that we carry trick us into thinking that we run the world and are masters of all we survey. But 2020 has brought many hard lessons in the frailty and limitations of human power. Genesis 11 is an invitation to reflect on our own hearts, to discern in what artificial Eden, in what towers of pride we are placing our trust. I think there are also lessons here about our efforts to control God, to make our names great, to make our names large instead of his. And I think one of the ways that Christians frequently do this is through prayer we wouldn't say that that's what we're doing. I mean, we maybe even wouldn't think that that's what we're doing, but I think that is what we're doing sometimes in the ways that we pray. We treat prayer as a tool to get what we want, right? And you see this happening. There are churches that will treat prayer almost like magic spells, 
or good luck charms that if we say it, then it has to happen. You will see this when people get angry with God because he did not answer in the ways that they wanted or as quickly as they wanted him to. I think you'll see this in, in prayer when it's turned into a platform to show off. Right? When people really just want to show off their ability and their speaking or whatever through their praying. And Jesus taught against this type of prayer. In Matthew 6, verse 5, he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. And a little later down, he says, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And something that I've been convicted about lately in my own life is how much of my prayer is asking God for stuff rather than praying for God. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. How often I pray about my concerns, my health, my needs, the things going on in my life. And what's hard about this is that our Father is generous, He's friendly towards us, He loves us, and He cares about our concerns. He wants us to cast all our anxieties upon Him. So it's not bad, obviously not bad, to pray for those different things, and He wants us to. But that is not to be the totality of our prayer. And really what's happening, I think, in those times is that I'm trying to make my name great in the heavenly places. But look at how Jesus taught us to pray a few verses later in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And of course he goes on to ask for daily bread and things like that. But I'm just convicted about how little I pray that way. Jesus says we don't have to babble our long list of requests. It feels like we have to. Maybe we say it over and over again, he'll listen. Of course, there's other places in Scripture that encourage us to pray for things and keep asking and be persistent. Jesus himself says it. But I think there's a difference in persistence in prayer and babbling or thinking if we get the words just right, then, you know, he'll act. We don't have to babble our long list of requests, Jesus says, because the Father already knows what we need before we ask. And so perhaps our prayers should be chiefly concerned with praising the Lord, with praying that his name would be great in all the earth. Perhaps our first words in the morning should be, Lord Jesus, may you be honored today. And again, it's good. He wants us to lift up our different concerns and needs in prayer. But there's an order to that. Jesus teaches us that we are to magnify the name of the Lord first before we get to our daily bread and the deliverance from our trials and deliverance from the evil one, which are all important. I think the less we're concerned with building our artificial Edens, whether with prayer or accomplishments or all the many things that we take pride in, the less he'll be concerned to come down and scramble our prideful plans. And as we finish this journey in Genesis, next week Advent begins and we'll switch to something else, the book of Revelation actually, from the beginning to the end. But as we finish this time in Genesis, I hope that you have been renewed in your faith, in your confidence in the Lord's goodness, in your hope that he will generously fulfill his promises. I hope you have been built up for your fight against the evil one, 
and against the traces of sin-stolen kingdom that still tangle up your desires and thoughts. I hope that you have remembered and been reminded of what you are. An image bearer, fearfully and wonderfully created in Yahweh's image, living, breathing monuments to his glory, royal priests called to tend your corners of creation until the master returns. The Tower of Babel is Yahweh's warning for us to remember that we are only human. It's not a message telling us that we are nothing or that we deserve nothing. It is the serpent who tricks us into thinking that we're nothing, that we don't matter, that we can't do the things that we dream of doing, that we will never be able to do the things that God asks us to do. And this is actually part of the, the motivation for us to, to have the sermon series that I think that, not that this is just an issue at Calvary, but I think that many Christians just don't fully appreciate the power and the authority that we have in Jesus' name to follow him and to do the things he's asked us to do. It is the serpent speaking when you say that you will never be free, that you will never change, that you'll never be lovable. My heart breaks when I hear someone say, and I say this about different things too, but my heart breaks as your pastor, as one of your pastors, when I hear folks say that they can't share their faith with someone that they know, that they're not qualified to proclaim the gospel. My heart breaks when people tell me that they cannot get up here and share a testimony. What do I have to say? I get the shyness part of it. I'm not coming down on anybody for being shy and not liking public speaking, but it's, for some folks it's deeper than that. It's an unworthiness to come up and share with the church. When people say that they could never serve like somebody else serves, or they could never love like somebody else loves, or they could never be creative like somebody else is creative, hush that voice of the serpent, my friends. Yahweh does not want us to think that we're nothing. He wants us to remember what we are. Men and women created in his image and also redeemed in the blood of Jesus and being made new in the power of the Holy Spirit. Miraculous. The good news is that the Lord became one of us. I know we've heard that a million times, but just think about it again. That wasn't an act. Jesus wasn't a puppet. Right? It's not if you cut him open, he'd be full of golden gas or something. He bled all the way down. Jesus had a pulse. I imagine his back ached in the morning. He stubbed his toe on rocks and it hurt. He got splinters when he helped his dad. But he didn't just become human for a little while and beam back up with the mothership at the end. Right? He experienced the worst of us. Not from his own heart, but from what he received. He was abandoned by his friends, turned on by his family, accused by his leaders, betrayed to death. Jesus knows what it's like to trust in God 
while the demonic, oppressive tide rises around you. And don't forget, church, that Jesus is still a man. There is no Bible verse that says he got rid of his body after he ascended to heaven. Right? Indeed, the whole point of that is that one of our brothers, a human like me and you with fingerprints and teeth, a human, a man, is sitting on the throne of the cosmos. Do you not know, Paul wonders in 1 Corinthians 6, that we are to sit in judgment over angels? That we are to sit in judgment over the spiritual beings. We shall rule over them. The, older, the elder brother has been passed over for the younger Paul says in another place that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places today. What does that mean? I think it means that we should no longer let the serpent's lies masquerade as humility. Do not think too little of Christ in you. You are authorized, brothers and sisters, to do the things that Jesus did. We're not doing magic tricks. Things don't always go our way, right? We shouldn't always expect God to move in the exact same way. But we, too, can proclaim the kingdom, can bring healing, can pray for people, can hear the voice of God, can drive out evil spirits. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus sends out his disciples, and they come back to him, and it says they return with joy. And they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I imagine, with a smile on his face, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's not about us and what we can do. It's about his glory and the magnification of his name. And there's one final detail in the Tower of Babel story that I want to comment on. Verse 9 says, Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. If you have a physical Bible, it likely has a footnote for that verse, for that word Babel. And at the bottom of the page, it will say that is Babylon. Same word, Babylon. Babylon is a city, this city, later an empire, that stands throughout the Bible as the main opposition, human opposition to God and his people. Babylon is the symbol of all human power, culture, and innovation that is used against the Creator and His purposes. It is the human counterpart to the demonic stolen kingdom. Babylon is as bad as it gets. And the fact that it shows up here right at the beginning of the story is a frightening testament to how quickly things can go wrong. But our story doesn't end there. If you keep reading in Genesis 11, as the curtain closes on this dreadful city, Genesis turns to another genealogy. And we often skip over the genealogies. You shouldn't. There's a lot there for us. Every genealogy in the Bible 
is a reminder that Yahweh's promises still stand, that he continues in his work of bringing the serpent stomper, who will rescue us from the stolen kingdom. And if you keep reading into the beginning of Genesis 12, you'll see that Abraham, the father of Israel, our great ancestor in faith, was called out of this region, called out of this network of cities to become a new family, a tribe for all the tribes. And a few thousand years after that, Abraham's family tree flowered into the Messiah, Jesus. And spiritual beings announced the good news of great joy that is for all the nations. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. All glory be to God on high, and to the earth be peace. Goodwill henceforth from God to man begin and never cease. Amen.